one of the things that I've hoped to do over the course of this series is to make some things that are usually very scary uh, a little bit more familiar to us. Um, we've talked about that with uh, living wills and power of attorney for health care. We Gerald shared with us a few weeks ago on pre-planning funerals and what that's all about. One of the th those things that you never hear about until it's in that moment when you have to think about it is uh, hospice care. And there are a lot of misconceptions about what hospice care is. And, and um, I've known some real wonderful people involved in hospice care. Now, I've been told that the finest hospice nurse there is is with us today. That's what Gerald said anyway. And I have no reason to doubt Gerald. I've, I've always trusted him. But um, I said, Gerald, can, do you know anybody? And he, he immediately thought of one person. It's Kay Wheeler. And I know some of you are very familiar with Kay. And uh, some of your eyes lit up when you saw her. So that must be a good thing. Um, but Kay is going to come and share with us a little bit today about what hospice care is all about. She has some uh, pamphlets and brochures for us to be a little bit more familiar. But I just invite Kay to come and, and share with us. Good morning. First of all, thank you for issuing this invitation for me to be here this morning. It's quite an honor to, to uh, share with you the passion of my heart, which is hospice care. Um, many of you have experienced hospice care. Many of you heard of people that have been in hospice or um, have lived it. And they're our best advertising to get the word out about what hospice really is. But I'll do my best to tell you some of the things that I can, I can explain about hospice. Um, the definition for hospice to me is it's a plan of care when people don't have any more treatment options. When a person's condition is, um, has run its course and there is no more chemotherapy and there's no more antibiotics and there's no more surgery and there's no more anything that the doctors can do. That's when the doctors will usually say, let's, let's have you talk to hospice, see what they can do to help you. Hospice are nurses are experts in pain control and other symptom management, which goes along with terminally ill patients. And in my experience, I have seen people die without hospice and I've seen people die with hospice. And hands down, it's a much better experience for the patient and the family when hospice is there to help. Um, many people feel that hospice is just for cancer diagnosis. That's a common one, but it's not. It's for anything that's going to cause someone's life to end. It can be a bad heart, it can be a lung disease, kidney disease, um, dementia, like Alzheimer's. Um, it can be just anything that's going to take someone's life and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So, um, some, of the, some of the details about hospice is it's paid for in its entirety by Medicare, by Medicaid. Most insurances have a hospice policy as well. The wonderful thing about our hospice and many other hospices is that we will take care of patients if they don't have a payer source. If they can't afford it, they don't have the money for whatever reason, we will take care of them no matter what with, with no strings attached. Um, 
we have a, an interdisciplinary team approach to hospice, which is we have a medical director who oversees, it's a physician who oversees our care, but the nurses, the CNAs, the social workers um, are all very involved in the patient care. That can be performed at home, at a child's home when the parent is you know, being cared for by the family. It can happen in a nursing home, in an assisted living facility, anywhere where the, where the need for hospice is there, that's where we go. Um, we do have chaplains and volunteers. Uh, chaplains sometimes come in and help out with family situations in the spiritual realm when maybe this person hasn't been to church for a very long time, they feel awkward calling someone to come at that point. Our chaplains can go in and bridge that, that gap, if you will. Um, the one thing that people are surprised about um, is that if we enroll a patient into hospice because they're doing poorly, they've been in the hospital and they're not expected to do very well from there on, they come into hospice and they're not doing well and, well, miraculously, sometimes they get better and they don't have a need for hospice anymore. We will discharge them from hospice and that's a cause for celebration in anybody's heart and mind. So we don't admit people and then just stay until they die. We, you know, we let them have as much quality of life as they possibly can in hospice or out of hospice. Um, everything we do is by doctor's orders. The hospice nurses don't make up things. We don't make up medication uh, orders or any other orders. It's all done with doctor's orders. Anyone can make a hospice referral. A family member, the doctor, a neighbor can suggest it to a family. Anyone can call hospice directly and say, can you come out and talk to us? Can you come out and assess my loved one and see if we're even in the ballpark for hospice. And we will be glad to do that. We can do that while a patient's still in the hospital or come to your home or come to a nursing home setting and assess the situation and go from there. Um, a lot of myths about hospice. One of them is that hospice comes in and stops all their medications, gives them morphine, and they die. Wrong. <laughs> that is so wrong. We do everything we can to keep that person as comfortable as we can, and if their routine medication keeps them comfortable, they're allowed to take that. It's, not a, it's nothing against hospice to do that. Um, at the end of someone's life, um, we are very concerned about the families afterwards. We will father, follow a family for up to 13 months after the death of their loved one and beyond that if that's necessary. We have bereavement counselors who will set them up with personal visits, with phone calls, with support groups, anything they need for as long as they need it. Um, we also have an 800 number that when someone is in hospice, the family, the nursing staff at the nursing home, um, whoever's caring for them has 24-hour access to a nurse so you don't have to go through miserable nights waiting for the nurse to come the next day. I have been a hospice nurse for 18 years. I can't even believe I'm standing here saying that, but um, hospice is something that I didn't even know about. Even when I went to nursing school many years ago, hospice was not um, a big deal at that point. 
so I had never heard of it until I was offered a job doing hospice care. So it is a well-kept secret, but I consider what I do as my vocation. It's, it's my job, but it's my vocation first. There are days that um, the blessings come to me so abundantly that I kind of feel guilty for yeah, because it is the Lord's work. I, I truly feel that. And in closing, one of, the, one of the greatest perks that I have as being a hospice nurse is that I'm not only allowed to pray with patients and their families, it's part of my job description. How blessed am I? Thank you very much. You have often heard me say, everyone gets one really bad day, at least one. And uh, today I want to tell you about one of mine. And like most days, it started out all about me and my problems. I was working in the prayer ministry in Terre Haute back in those days, and it was a Tuesday, and I remember I walked into the office, and immediately, as soon as I walked in, everybody wanted something from me. Nobody wanted prayer from me. <laughs> they wanted something else from me. I was immediately mobbed by everybody I worked with, and they wanted me to fix this computer, uh, fix this printer, fix this file, help with this presentation over here, and I was being pulled in about five different directions by the people that I worked with, and I had had enough. And so I turned to our office manager, and I said, is there anyone out at the prayer chapel today? The prayer chapel is this little one-room building we had at the prayer retreat center that overlooked the lake. It was beautiful, just a, just a little building there where we would go and pray. She said, no, the prayer chapel's empty. I said, I'm going there. Uh, I will be back later. And so I walked out to the prayer chapel, and I laid down on the floor. We had one of those great big pillows, and I, I laid down on that pillow, and I just poured all of my problems out to God that morning. I was filled with my problems, and I let it all out. Back then, I, I, kept a, I had this habit with my prayer journal that on Monday, every day of the week, I prayed for somebody different. And so on Mondays in my prayer journal, I prayed for my parents, and on Tuesdays, I prayed for my brother Brad and his family. On Wednesdays, I prayed for Camille. On Thursdays, I prayed for Colleen and her family. And that was my habit. And this was a Tuesday. So it was my day to pray for Brad. And, and I sat there trying to pray. And I realized as I was trying to pray, I hadn't seen my brother in over a month. And I hadn't had any real conversations with him for a long time. So I had, I had no idea what to pray that morning. I had no idea where to begin, and what I didn't know, what I couldn't have known, was that that day, after a very long struggle with depression, after a long struggle with anxiety and stress, that morning, my brother would take his own life. And so, laying there in the prayer chapel, very consumed with my own problems, I said, Lord, I don't know what to pray. <laughs> I don't know where to begin praying for my brother. I have no idea what my brother's going through. I don't know what to pray. And so I decided right then and there that I was going to wait on the Lord to tell me what to pray about. 
Now, I promise you, and I've said this before, I promise you, I will never do anything to give you the impression that I am some kind of super spiritual giant. I will never stand up here and say, the Lord has told me to tell you this, or God spoke to me and said, that kind of manipulativeness, that's abusive as far as I'm concerned when a, when a preacher does that kind of stuff. But there that morning in the prayer chapel, when I asked God to tell me what to pray, inside, not audibly, but inside I heard a voice, and that voice said, open your Bible to Psalm 90. So God told me to tell you, open your Bibles to Psalm 90. If you're using those Bibles we provide for you, it's on page 496. Psalm 90. And I want to be clear about this. This is not a psalm about suicide. This is a psalm about life. It's about how fragile life can be. It's a psalm that, dis- that confesses our distress and confesses our struggle and even confesses our depression. And when we feel like everything has turned against us, when we think that maybe even God has turned against us, when we are choking in our despair, in those moments, what can we really know about life? What can we really know about God? What is it that sees us through in those moments? Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2 says, The prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is God. He is stable. He is secure. He is established. He is everlasting. But we have to confess that we are none of those things. But it's a lesson for us. When it comes to navigating the struggles that we face, we need to see God's perspective. Right from the very beginning, you notice this is a psalm of Moses. It says this is a psalm of Moses and that it is a prayer. With all the stories we've read about Moses' leadership, about Moses' miracles, with all the scenes that we've seen from TV and movies, from Charlton Heston and all the others, it's easy to forget Moses was a man who struggled with despair. He struggled with a lack of confidence. He struggled with his own failure. He struggled with sin. In Numbers chapter, 15, or chapter 11, verse 15, Moses says to God, Numbers eleven fifteen. Moses says to God, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Now, I got to ask you, after all that Moses had seen, you know, from the the, the uh, taking of the firstborn to the splitting of the, uh, of the Red Sea to the drowning of the Egyptians. When Moses, who had seen all of that, says to God, just go ahead and kill me, do me a favor, and spare me this misery, does that sound suicidal? Does it sound suicidal to ask a God that you know can do those things to take your life? You know, Moses isn't the only one. You look at the book of Jonah. 
storm blows up, Jonah's running from God, storm blows up, Jonah's on that ship, and the storm's there, and what does, he, what does Jonah say to the sailors? He says, throw me into the sea. Now, Jonah had not read the book of Jonah, okay? Jonah did not know that there was a big fish in the water waiting for him. Does that sound suicidal? Just throw me into the sea. And Jonah's not the only one. Elijah? Elijah asked God to take his life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says that there was a period of time when he despaired of life itself. One study I read said that 16%, 16% of all Christians have had suicidal thoughts. That's a lot of us. That's a lot of us reaching the point where we just don't feel like life is worth living. And Moses, Jonah, Elijah, Paul, Jesus would want you to know you're not alone in that. And you can hear Moses' despair in this psalm. You can feel his failure. You can feel his awareness of his sin. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, God, you return man to dust. You say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. If you think back to last week, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you hear a little bit of Solomon's tension in Moses' words, that tension between the seasons of life and the eternity that God has placed in our hearts. And I think you also hear a desire to understand something bigger than himself, bigger than the problems that we're facing, bigger than the depression that's right in front of him. He says in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We wish we could see things the way that God sees them. We wish we had His perspective instead of seeing our problems that are right in front of our face the whole time. We wish we had a, a bigger perspective. I remember years ago talking to Tom Tabor when Tom was first studying uh, truck driving, learning how to be a truck driver. And Tom told me that the most important thing that he had learned about truck driving, the most important thing was they teach you to drive a mile ahead of where you are now. That from that vantage point, sitting up high in that rig, you can see a mile ahead of you, and you learn to drive a mile ahead of where you are. So you pay attention to the road ahead of you. You look for the twists. You look for the turns. You look for the traffic. You see if there's any problems up there that you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to change things about your route. You're going to have to adjust the way you're driving. A mile ahead of time, you are ready for any problems that might be out there. That's a wonderful perspective. And I've always wished that Tom could have applied that perspective to his life instead of just to his driving. Moses is looking for that kind of perspective on his troubles. And I hope we realize the problems that we can cause ourselves when we let our troubles pile up, when we let them overwhelm us. 
Because when we do that, we can't see God's perspective. We can't see beyond our own troubles. That kind of oppressive viewpoint is dangerous. It's, it's deadly. It's suffocating. And, and there's, there's no way out of it. It's that point of view that we hear too often too late when someone says, what is the point of going on? The effort to go on living and facing those problems every day becomes too much and death starts to look better. Or as one Christian who had contemplated suicide put it, listen to her words, she says, you don't try to kill yourself because death is appealing, but because life is agonizing. We don't want to die, but we can't stand to be devoured. You hear that? We don't want to die but we can't stand to be devoured. That's the perspective I want you to hear when you read these next words. Verse 7, Moses goes on and he says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. I want you to hear me carefully. That point of view that you're seeing expressed there, that point of view of who God is, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Hear me carefully. Those words that you just read in your Bible, those aren't true. That's not a true understanding of who God is. That's not who the loving, caring, forgiving God that we worship is. Those are the words of a depressed frustrated person who is overwhelmed with the problems that are before them, who is so overwhelmed with the challenges and the problems before them that they can't see the love of God. They can't see the forgiveness of God in that moment. And they have no choice but to believe that God is against them, that the world is against them, that their friends are against them, their family is against them, life is against them. There may be times when you're in a place where you feel what Moses felt, you feel that suffocation. And what these words tell you is you're not alone. Moses felt that. He made it through. You can make it through. He goes on in verse 9, and he says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We have this hope that our faith will make sense of the world. But too often when we're overwhelmed, when we're depressed, we can't see beyond our own pain, and we can't begin to answer those questions about what's wrong with us. Why has God let us down? Why is this happening to me? So in our hearts, we decide the problem is probably me, and if it's me, then there's really only one way out of these problems. Now, anytime we talk about suicide, from a Christian perspective, we talk about suicide in the Bible, there's a question that always comes up. And that question is, Is suicide an unforgivable sin? In other words, do people who commit suicide automatically go to hell? And I want to make this very 
very clear. There is only one thing that will send you to hell. Only one thing. Just one that will send you to hell. And that is dying without calling on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the only thing that sends us to hell. And, and this idea that, that suicide will, will send you to hell, it's based on a very faulty understanding of grace, a faulty understanding of grace that sounds a lot more like works than, than grace, where, where I believe that I have to repent of every single sin I commit, or otherwise I'm going to get to heaven, or I'm going to get up there and God's going to open the books and go, ooh, Brett, you, you, uh, you said a bad word on uh, this Thursday here, and we can't let you in because of that. You know, that's, that's wrong. That's not how grace works. If that's how grace works, I could have a fight with my wife, I could say some things I shouldn't say, and I could step out of the house and get hit by a bus, and I would go to hell. That, that's not grace. That's not how grace works. Now, the problem with that is, the fear for some people is if we remove hell from the equation, that's like giving people permission to commit suicide. And I just want to clarify that. You do not have permission to commit suicide. Suicide is a sin. Suicide is taking what belongs to God and claiming it as your own, and, and you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. There is no reward for that. There is no glory in that. You don't get any stars in your crown for that. No, you can't do that. And, and, and as deep as your despair is, as painful as the hurt is, there is something better on the other side. There is someone better on the other side of those hurts. So, Moses spends the first 11 verses of this psalm in his despair. He spends the first 11 verses in despair, and it isn't until the 12th verse that he's finally able to voice his request to God. 11 verses before he ever voices his request to God. And it might take us a while to get there too. It might take us a while to get to that point, but somehow we have to see beyond the problem at hand. And we have to see beyond ourselves. Back in August, after Robin Williams committed suicide, there was a lot of talk, a lot of very understanding and sympathetic talk about those who are suicidal, those who have committed suicide. And some of it was good. Some of it wasn't so good. There was one statement that I saw posted on Facebook a lot by a lot of very well-meaning people, and, and you may have posted it also. The statement originated with a group called Suicide.org, and, and this statement was posted many times. It says, suicide is not a selfish act. It is an act of desperation by someone in intense pain. Now, from my perspective... I am going to have to respectfully disagree with that statement. Suicide, at the risk of sounding heartless, suicide is a very selfish act. In fact, it is the end of selfishness. It is the ultimate end of selfishness. And I'm talking about biblical selfishness here, where you are so consumed with self that nothing else matters but self. It is selfish because it takes you out of your responsibilities, your responsibility to yourself, your responsibility to your family, to your work, to your church, your responsibility 
to your God. It is selfish because it requires someone else to clean up the mess that you're going to leave behind. And I'm not just talking about physically clean up the mess. I'm talking about the emotional mess that you'll cause, the spiritual mess that you're going to cause, the questions and the, the grief that so many people are going to go through. But that selfishness is at the heart of the problem. The pain has become so great, so intense, because you can't see beyond self. You can't see beyond your own pain. So when Moses finally gets to voicing his request before God, he prays for perspective. He prays for the ability to see beyond his struggles. And it would be real easy for me to say at this point, if you're suicidal or if you're depressed, here's what you need. And that's not the point of this, of this Scripture. The problem is that at that point in life, you're so wrapped up in your own problems. You're so suffocated with self that you can't see beyond yourself. And so Moses' prayer is for all of us, for everyone who needs some perspective in life. He prays in verse 12, So teach us to number our days. That's a call to perspective. It's a call to see each day on its own. One of the biggest mistakes that we make is letting troubles pile up, isn't it? We just let them all pile up. We'll deal with that later. We'll deal with that later until finally the pile becomes so big that we can't see beyond it. We can't see around it. We can't see any way out of it. Jesus said, each day has enough trouble of its own. Tom Tabor learned to drive looking a mile ahead at the troubles that were still a ways off. Now, you notice this kind of perspective does not come naturally to us. Moses doesn't say, help us to see this. Help us to, see it, to, to number our days or grant us the ability to number our days. Moses says, teach us to number our days. It does not come naturally it might be the kind of thing that you learn that you are taught after you've had to go through some very dark times. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the goal. You know, all through the Old Testament, especially you look through the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs, Wisdom is this expression of who God is in your life. And wisdom is more than just knowledge. Wisdom is more than just knowing stuff. And it's more than just having smarts. Wisdom is the ability to see God's purpose and God's presence in each situation of life. Wisdom calls us to bow to His Lordship, to put Him first, and to know that He's in control no matter what. And even on those horrible days, even on those dark days, He is still Lord, He is still in control, and you can trust Him to see you through. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. Now chances are, someone who's in the middle of that kind of darkness can't see that for themselves. They can't see beyond the problems before them. So what can we do? I want you to hear me. We, we can't fix depression. We can't fix depression for other people. But I believe we can provide a climate that is open, a climate that is inviting, a, a climate where if they are looking for help beyond their pain, if they're looking for, for someone to understand, they can find hope, they can find Peace. In verses 13 and 14, Moses prays, Return, O Lord, 
How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days, uh, for all of our days. It reminds us of those words of Jeremiah from Lamentation 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Where are people going to see that? Where are they going to see that God's faithfulness is great? Where are they going to feel that? They're going to see it here. They're going to feel it here when we show it to them. When they know the love of God because they know our love. Because they know our support. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Do you hear the words, those, you hear the grace in those words? He says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Those aren't just words of grace. Those are words of community, servants, children, all of us together. And I can't stress this enough. Are you a part of what's happening here? Are you a part of the lives of other Christians? You know, too often we're just concerned with self. We're concerned with what I'm going to get out of this, what, what this is doing for me. That sounds a little selfish, doesn't it? And instead of what we're bringing here for other people, are you bringing the love of Christ here? Are you bringing the grace that, that others need here? This isn't just a place to sit and consume. That's why we want you involved. That's why we really want you present. Not, not just so we can talk about how many people were in church, but we want people involved so you're involved in other people's lives so that, so that if someone is here that needs to know that God is greater than their problems, they're going to see that through you what you're going through they have a better chance of knowing they have a better chance of knowing God's presence through what they see you going through than what they hear me preaching they have a better chance of knowing that they can make it through by what they see you going through than what they're going to hear in a sermon they need to know his glorious power and they need to know it through your presence they need to know it through your story which is why I'm telling you my story so that day I was out at the prayer chapel and I finished reading Psalm 90. I read through it, understood a little bit of it. And I finally prayed, okay God, how do I pray for my brother? What do I pray for my brother today? And somewhere inside me that morning, I heard the answer. And the answer I heard from God was, Pray that he knows that he is loved. Just pray for your brother that he knows that he is loved. And so I prayed, Lord, wherever my brother is today, whatever Brad's doing, let him know that you love him. Let him know that his wife loves him. Let him know that his kids love him. Let him know that I love him. I finished praying. I headed back to the office. I got to work. And shortly after that, the call came that my brother had shot himself. Now, I'll, I'll never be sure of this on this side of heaven. But I believe that he did that at the very moment that I was praying for him. 
that I was praying for him to know that he was loved. Now, what do I do with that? Did God answer my prayer? I think God answers all our prayers. I think God answered my prayer. What do I do with that? I, I have no idea what to do with that. Other than to tell you guys, after 15 years, to, to tell you guys the story. And I guess I also tell you that my God is bigger than suicide. My God is bigger than any problem you're facing. No matter what you're going through, no matter what hurt is right there in front of your face, no matter what it is that you can't see around, God is bigger than that. And your perspective may have blocked you from seeing that, but God is bigger. And God is able. And God will see you through. And I think I offer you the blessing that, that Moses offers here at the end. Notice verse 17. Verse 17 is a blessing. Moses says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If someone feels like the world is against them, if they feel like life is against them, if they even feel like God is against them, if they can't feel His favor themselves, then let them feel His favor through me. Can we do that? Can we make sure that people can feel the favor of God through the works of our hands, through the way we reach out, through the way we touch them, through the way that we love them? Let them know His favor through my love. I want to tell you one more story, and this one happens even earlier. This happens back in 1987. I was a junior at Lincoln, and uh, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. I don't know if you guys remember what that was like, but we had these things out in the hallway. They were called pay phones, and you put quarters in them, and you could talk to people for a quarter. One night uh, at Lincoln, the, the phone rang, and I got the, someone yelled, Brett, you got a phone call. I went down, I picked up the phone, and it was my brother's wife. It was Sherry, my sister-in-law. And we talked for a little bit, and she had never called me before. And she said, I've got a favor to ask of you. I said, okay, what's, what's the favor? She said, well, your brother and I have been doing some talking, and we would like to get baptized. And we were just wondering if you would come home this weekend and if you could baptize us. Well, this is different. So, yeah, I would be very glad to do that. So that Friday night after I got home from school that weekend, and I, uh, I went out to their house, and we opened up a Bible together, and we read about baptism, and we read about God, and we read about our sin, we read, read about what Jesus did for us, and, and we went out to, to Bell Ridge, and I baptized them that night. I baptized them into Christ. I baptized them into His death. I baptized them into His resurrection. And then we went back to their house, and we talked some more. And I hope I never forget a statement that my brother made that night after I had baptized him, and we were talking about faith, and we were talking about what it means to be a Christian. My brother said to me that night, if I'm going to do this, if I am going to be a Christian, I am not going to do it halfway. I changed that a little bit, but I think you get the point. He said, I'm not going to do it halfway. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to do it right. And I was worried for a week or two that there might be two preachers in the family. 
and that he might be better than me. I know, I know that my brother struggled with that commitment that he made that night. And I know that his depression was a big part of that struggle. But I also know that Jesus does not struggle to keep commitments to us. You know that? As much trouble as we might give ourselves, Jesus has no problem keeping his commitments to us. He keeps his promises perfectly. We come to this table. We come to share the blood of his covenant. We come to share his commitment to us. When we come to the table, it's not my blood. In other words, it's not my life. It's not what I am capable of doing or incapable of doing. And the blood of the covenant that we share at this table is not my brother's blood. It's not what my brother did right. It's not about what my brother couldn't do. It's the blood of a perfect Savior who loves us with a perfect love. And it's the realization that no matter what you're going through today, He can love you through it. He can see you through it. And maybe it's not about what you're going through today. Maybe it's about what someone else who's going to be around this table is going through today. And maybe the question is, not what you're going to take away from the table with his blood, but what are you going to bring to the table? What are you going to bring for someone else that might show them something better? Alana's going to share a song with us. I hope you can hear a little of that in what she has to share.